kind of the master, master connector in, in Denver. <laughs> I've loved is. getting to know Kyle over the last couple of years. So Kyle, if you're listening, thank you for connecting Dr. Carly with me. Um. <laughs> Welcome to the Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, and with me today, I have Kent Frazier. Now, I am particularly excited to be talking with Kent today because we are now currently in the midst of our global pandemic, and many of us are sheltering in place, whether by choice or by obligation or other constraints. So what Kent brings that I think is phenomenal is talking about um, focusing on addressing mental health and being fully human. And initially this conversation was going to be in the workplace, but now um, it is becoming ever more clear that the workplace surrounds us wherever we go as we are working from our homes. So to get to know Kent, it's true. To get to know Kent a little bit better, he is a loving co-parent to two beautiful kiddos, and his life work is dedicated to alleviating unnecessary human suffering. Over the past 25 years, Kent has held a variety of leadership roles within the people practices of HR and organizations ranging from small privately owned startups to mid-sized private equity owned growth states companies and publicly traded Fortune uh, 150 organizations. Organizations and clients include Ghirardelli Chocolate, Amazon Web Services, Petco, Sapient, Centex, LRW, Big Muse, Helios, and Aerosol. Kent co-founded two nonprofits, Conscious Capitalism in the Bay Area and Conscious Capitalism Los Angeles, both part of the global conscious capitalism movement. His current focus is addressing mental health in the context of work by reimagining and redefining the very ways we relate to and participate in our work with a focus on what it means to be fully human in the workplace. Thank you for joining us, Kent. I'm so excited for this conversation. Mm, thank you so much for having me, and I apologize for speaking into your introduction. <laughs> the introduction was about you, so I don't know what personal what could personalize it more than having your voice in it. Mm. Well, thank you for the introduction, and and really thank you for the invitation to be in this conversation with you. And maybe we can first acknowledge our friend Kyle Matthews, our shared friend who brought us together, <laughs> kind of the That's master true. connector. <laughs> In Denver, I've loved getting to know Kyle over the last couple of years. So Kyle, if you're listening, thank you for connecting Dr. Carly with me. Um, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, we, we've joked on, on other podcasts because he actually connected me with um, the individual and producer that launched this whole podcast. Steven. Him, <laughs> that I know Steven and, and that I know Jamie, um, who does Abundant Beans, another fabulous podcast as we're all stockpiling things to listen to. Um, yeah, we joke that it's not, you know, this nine degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's the nine degrees of Kyle Matthews here in Denver. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He's a master connector. (laughs) Well, everyone has their gifts. Yes. 
that's wonderful. Well, so I know, I mean, you're going to get bonus conversation from Kent and I because we just already <laughs> waxed poetic for about 30 minutes before we stopped to introduce him. Uh, but to get to know him a little bit better, um, you're going to get our now um, always first question. I was going to say famous, but I don't know if it's famous yet. Uh, but when was movement first fun for you? Mm. Yeah, the, uh, the flash that immediately comes to mind is picture two little boys. <laughs> picture, let's say, maybe a two-year-old little boy and maybe a four-year-old little boy. And maybe these two-year-old boys, brothers, uh, two and four-year-old, are sitting atop of a flight of stairs. <laughs> And imagine they're sitting next to each other atop this flight of stairs, ready to launch themselves down the stairs on their arses. <laughs> and this was a game we called Whoa, Whoa. Because as our butts would go down the stairs, we would go, Whoa, 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 and bounce all the way down, crashing into the wall at the foot of the stairs. This was a fun movement game for a two and four year old. I am very sure that our mothers listening are having a very hard time imagining their children doing this. I'm sure, I'm pretty sure my mother remembers my brother and I as angelic, calm, uh, diminutive, <laughs> I think is a word she uses. Yeah, yeah, quiet. Quiet, yes, not so much. But yeah, I mean, you know, we, I had the wiggles since I was a little kid. I just love moving, um, running around. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just... We're, we are made to move, right? It's an evolutionary yeah. thing for us. So I've just always loved movement. But whoa, whoa was my first <laughs> recollection. Oh, I love that. That is, that is such a fantastically personalized beginning of movement. And what I like is how it speaks to, at least what I know of you and what you've been doing, it speaks to your creativity and improvisation when it comes to humanities movement mm. and how you engage with people um, to be, and I love to just use your term, to be fully human. That we are, and we're given a chance now when it comes down to it, we have the capacity to be so creative and independent and exhilarated with the small things. And so many of our conversations take that being fully human back to humanity in its nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What what um what's present to me is I as I hear you uh share that is you know what what's being brought to light in our current context uh, mm -hmm. that that you opened with right we're in this pandemic we're in this this uh, social distancing context and we're seeing so clearly that human to human contact is actually how the world works. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah, my, my earbuds just cut out, and I want to make sure it's not. <laughs> can you hear me still? Around. I can see. You, so I just want this to do a a loop around. Why did this do that? Okay, well, I guess they're not going to work. So here we go. We'll just continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, Got to yeah. roll with it, right? We'll roll with it. That's what life is right now. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's this human con human to human connection, and so. What, what inspired you into all of these ideas of consciousness? Where, I mean, this is obviously your passion in life's work. So what's, what's helped create that for you? 
Um, the short answer is pain. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's one of our greatest teachers. And for me, that pain showed up as, you know, uh, <clears throat> having a very blessed life and um, still feeling um, this emptiness despite having achieved all of the hallmarks that were conditioned to want for and reach for with the expectation and hope that once I get this thing, whatever that thing is, you mm-hmm. know, in, in Buddhism, they speak to this as the, the pain that's associated with conditionality. I'll be happy when I, I, this happens or that happens, or I get this, or this doesn't happen. Or, right. <laughs> yeah. So the next destination. Yeah. And so after a series of, of you know, really blessings and, and accomplishments in my life, personally, relationally, um, athletically, vocationally, all, all these things, um, I found myself still feeling relatively empty and, and disconnected despite the outer world presence of of abundance that you know i had not explored the inner domain and so this was back in well really kind of one of the last major um larger moments that we've had to navigate in 2008 you know at the end of the, the housing crisis and at that time i was um vp of hr for uh the second largest publicly held home builder in the United States. Sentex, we were building, you know, roughly 40,000 homes a year across the U S I remember our CEO having meetings with uh, Ben Bernanke, who was there then the, the chairman of the federal reserve. And, you know, they were having conversations about what do we do with interest rates to, to help, you know, the home buying market to get people into homes. And, you know, this brought about the lending deregulations and you know i think all of this was in good faith hopefully to allow people to get into homes and stimulate the economy in some way but we kind of got a little unmoored from what we were up to mm-hmm. and it, it occurred to me at, at that moment that um there, there's more to, to this game of life there's more to being fully human than uh, experiencing or consuming in the exterior mm-hmm. world. And there's a whole deep well of, gosh, all kinds of juiciness and mystery when we, when we turn our attention inward. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would, you know, this is 12 years ago, maybe. Um, and, and what I've come to learn then is o- over the last 12 years of practice, letting all of these things fall away that I had subscribed my sense of self to or attached my sense of self to be that a job, a a financial number in my bank account, a person, a house or address, whatever it is, these Mm -hmm. these things that many of us attach our identity and and sense of self-worth and enoughness to. And over the past 10 years, it's really been a, a, a journey of allowing those things to fall away and, and remain present with 
what remain what what's still here yeah <laughs> who's the I, I am blank when all of those previous i am <laughs> labels that we've used are, are no longer accurate mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's i mean that is definitely one of those things that is um easier said than done i mean it is it's a gritty practice to to think that um we need to let go of all of this the trappings of shoulds because it's constantly reinforced you know i am my home and my zip code i am my job and goodness not being able to physically treat my patients right now it's certainly a gritty moment of who i am without without my doctoring right so so this you know what what you're pointing to in your current context is actually it's dynamic in that there's there's this sense of self that we have with our our desire and want to really you know Khalil Gibran in his work, The Prophet, speaks to work as love made visible. So when, we, mm-hmm. when we're able to get in touch with <clears throat> what some might call our, our soul's work or our sacred dance, it, it doesn't seem like work and we actually yearn to offer it. Yeah. And when we can't do that, <clears throat> um, that, that, that compromises our sense of self, that compromises our ability to feel like we're contributing and creating mm-hmm. and serving. And in in a really real way, it it um, calls into our attention around how, how am I going to make a living and how am I going to pay the bills, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and that begins to tickle our amygdala, <laughs> right? <laughs> Reptilian must survive <laughs> totally, <laughs> and and we start having all these interior stress responses around mm-hmm. that, right? And well, so it, it can very quickly become a um, a downward spiral mm-hmm. if we don't have a practice set to really ground us in, you know, who we are beyond the, the surface level things that we do, roles that we play, mm-hmm. you know, but what's the deeper I am? <laughs> well, and I think you bring up a really good point, you know, especially in the context that we're in. But of course, as we were discussing before we officially started, the context <laughs> that we're in isn't necessarily creating new problems it's shining a light on a lot of problems you know before before everybody had to go inward quite literally inside um there were (laughs) there were jobs at risks and schools at risks and homes at risk so as we talk about this deeper work and this idea of consciousness and doing your life's work and purpose it does come with this dichotomous push-pull of still existing in a physical world and mm-hmm. that reptilian amygdala brain saying but i have to have a roof over my head my ch- my children's head I, we need to eat we need to be cared for and have health care and so what i have always what i have loved about these discussions with you is i feel like it's easy to have these ideas of consciousness and and deeper meaning that become so esoteric that they negate, you know, those very real, um, often described in Maslow's hierarchy and needs. But here you're working within businesses, within capitalism to say, it's a push pull. You need to, you are fully human. You are physical. You have a physical form that needs food, shelter, and love. And we need to do the work to shy away from making our happiness depend on the shoulds. And that's a very different conversation. 100%. Uh, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm reminded riffing off of what you just said. Um, I did, I'm experimenting with this whole new format too. I've always wanted to have a podcast or a TV show or mm -hmm. a blog or a video thing. So I've started recording things. And last night I did one. Um, and what came to mind in the last night's conversation, which is still present in this conversation is um, there, there was an Indian sage named Jiddu Krishnamurthy who in one of his last talks at Ojai said to his listeners, um, do you want to understand my secret to happiness? <laughs> right. And this, <laughs> and this anticipatory hush, you know, falls over the, the listeners. And he very quietly after a contemplative moment offers, I, I don't mind what happens. And so as I've been playing with that, it invites us to maybe view all of life. Maybe our only problem is that we view things as problems. <laughs> <laughs> Very succinctly put. I love that. <laughs> you know, I've heard Tony Robbins say our biggest addiction is to our problems. And that's, and that's victim consciousness. So most people spend most of the time, and self-included, mm -hmm. in, in that reptilian brain that we were mentioning earlier, which has us operate in a very narrow band of self-interest and me orientation mm -hmm. um, for these survival needs, right? That, yeah. that, that need to be met. And when things like this happen in our environment, it, it, it's, it, it does invite that push-pull, like you're saying. We're pulled back into this victim consciousness. This is happening to me. This virus is happening to me. It's doing all these awful things. And I can, and I can choose to place my attention and, and my thoughts and everything I talk about and my actions that I see available to me. I, I can let that all unwind in that victim-limiting path. Mm-hmm. And how, how does that work out? Not, not so great. Yeah. How's that working for you? Yeah. Not was so it, great. Is that, oh, is that Dr. Phil? How's that working <laughs> How's that working for you? <laughs> so the, the, the move is best I, as I practice and as best I can tell in any context, whether it's a work context, a marital context, a parent-child context, a friendship context, is when we notice that we're being pulled towards that end of the continuum of negativity, of victimhood of complaining and blaming and judging and whining mm -hmm. you know we can recognize that continuing to feed that continues to put us in a disempowering context and we can't move yeah <laughs> we are yeah. literally frozen or fighting or running running away from what is so yes with not we, a whole lot of awareness either. With not a whole lot of awareness. We're hijacked by all those physiological stress yeah. responses, right? So all this work that had been um, in the Western world in a corporate context, you know, the whole subjective side of reality, you know, understanding what is, what is arising in our interior relative to what's arising in our exterior. You, you can't selectively disassociate that mm -hmm. in, in a lot of my in in my work what informs a lot of my work is uh ken wilbur's integral theory and he puts forward this beautiful lens that as he was studying the canon of human history and all the various ways people have tried to describe what's happening in, in a life be it through a scientific lens a philosophical lens 
whatever, a religious lens, he discovered that there are these four irreducible perspectives that are always present and they're incollapsible. You can't collapse them upon one another. And if you draw two by two uh, along the the one axis, you have um, interior and exterior. And on Mm -hmm. the other axis, you have um, the individual and the collective. And so at any given moment, we're all having our own interior individual experience that no one else will ever know what is so about that. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. (laughs) And that doesn't mean we can leave in the car when we come to work. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. we can leave it at home. That's always happening. (laughs) I think we try and talk ourselves out of it existing too. That we we say, you know, I can leave it in the car or I'm, I'm upset and I'm stressed and I'm worried, but no, 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 I'm, I'm fully here. This is about you. I'm not, don't worry about my brain. We, there's no getting away. We can't get away from ourselves. Correct. So, so, so that perspective is always present. And then what you were just speaking to is this other inner subjective, this sense of relatedness, this Mm -hmm. shared, um, um, felt sense, shared values, shared, um, like culture arises in this in collective interior realm where we feel a sense of belonging or not, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's always present. But where we've spent most of our time and attention, and this is, I think, largely due to you know, the, the Western scientific rational uh, modality and, and way of operating that we've privileged, mm-hmm. um, for the last, gosh, how, how many hundreds of years, if not thousands, um, where we've, we've privileged the, the exterior domain, the material world, the objective realm. And that's what I do, what you can see and measure at the individual level and all the structures and systems of cooperation that mm-hmm. allow all of those other perspectives to hang together. So in any given time, we, we can bring our awareness to wh- where am I, what am I present to in my own interior, in the shared interior, what I'm doing, saying, acting, what can be measured and how all of these things are in cooperation. And all those perspectives are what we call tetra arising in any given moment. So our work then is to notice when we're drifting towards this fear-based modality, scarcity, limitations, mm-hmm. complaining, how do we come back to some sense of groundedness and neutrality? And, and tying this to the work you and I have been doing in your chiropractic practice, which has just been really life-changing. I can't thank you enough. Like truly, 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 truly. It's always my pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But it has been so additive and accelerating of my other practices, you know, the yoga practices, the meditative Mm -hmm. practices, but it's really being able to find, as you described to me, this center core. And when I can feel centered in my body, physically, somatically, that also helps me arrive at some mental, emotional, psychological sense of balance mm-hmm. and, and clarity as well. You know, they're very interrelated. So, so when we can get to that centered neutral place, now our mind clears the, those, those stress physiological responses chill out, the nervous system chills out. Mm-hmm. And, and now we begin to have clarity and can view things as how might this be actually happening for me? Mm-hmm. And I start viewing it that way. I start thinking about things in that way. I start talking about things in that way and a whole new set of possibilities around actions I can take start showing up. 
And now I'm just, you know, being actually a conscious creator of my own reality, not being at the effect of what's happening to me. And, and that I, I feel that. is our fully human at work work right now. I, I think you, you make such a great image of that because I was thinking about these push pulls that are, I mean, as I'm sure we're all thinking about in our own lives based on, you know, the privileges we may or may not have and the, um, the needs that we have for all of our individual circumstances. But when you start talking about that, um, that axis, uh, you know, we're talking like X, Y axis yeah, of, exactly. of that internal and external. And then the privilege that we have put, the preference we have put to that external, mm-hmm. it certainly paints a lot of this turning inward into the panic and victim. And I will think personally about that is that over the last couple of months, my, you know, my external, my practice in office has been doing very well. And my family has had a lot of interaction and a lot of need. There has been so much happening in my external world. I could hardly see straight for better or for worse or well, without attaching positive negatives. It just was. And full. It was full. I was full. And in my quiet moments at home while I drank my coffee before my family woke up, I was sitting there thinking, I could just use so much more of this. Now, again, without (laughs) attaching the positive or negatives, it has happened. I have so much more of that. And still my first week of push-pull was, how do I let go of this external I mean, I got exactly what I asked for, sort of, not exactly, but I got a very good rendition of what I asked for to have all this time to go inside. And yet, because of that preference and privilege to the external world, it was victimizing and hard to be at the mercy of this thing happening in my life. Instead of, as you were describing so beautifully, accepting and looking at not letting these problems be problems, but letting them be opportunities. And I see so many people going to, um, to online and to virtual interactions and finding those opportunities and finding those ways to reach out. And it is, uh, quite frankly, it's beautiful. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, and, and we can, you know, my sense is in, um, I've listened to a number of your other guests on your, on your show, which I just love. I, I love all these conversations, really. I, I, I'm so honored to be part of the <laughs> cast of characters on your show. But, you know, a lot of them are in the healing arts, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in, our, in our current Fully Human at Work offering, which really looks at, um, let me see if I can link a couple things here to, together. Um, you had asked earlier, you know, what gave rise to this fully human at work um, notion, and I started to answer it, and then got I distracted myself. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've spent my my career twenty five plus years really attending to the human condition and for profit mm-hmm. organizations that you know talk about push pull, you know, have, having a very strong EBITDA growth profit motive, um, and not wanting to burn people out in order to achieve that. And, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, that's what happens more often than not when you look at the data. You look at the burnout rates, you look at the number of people leaving work nowadays due to mental health issues, stress, and anxiety. When you're focusing on that profit-driven model. Totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And research also suggests that when we attend to the human condition, that um, people who are thriving and find themselves in flow more frequently actually are five times more productive. And there's a whole bunch of research um, from the con conscious capitalism community. Uh, one, one body of research in particular called Firms of Endearment looked at companies' performance over a 10-year period of time that subscribe to a higher purpose than, than just a profit motive. They have a profit motive because profit's very important. We need it mm -hmm. um, to operate in integrity. Um, and it's not the sole reason for existing. So how do we, how do we fancy ourselves in, in what we're up to in the world such that we include a profit motive, but it's transcended by some, some higher, more noble cause? And the companies that operate in that way, that, that has some you know, deep and meaningful impact to the human condition, mm -hmm. the companies that operate that way and subscribe to a stakeholder relationship model, honoring all the various human elements of a, of a business ecosystem, which includes society, which includes our vendors or our partners, which includes our investors, which includes our communities and our employees and our customers, um, they actually financially outperform companies that are solely focused on a profit motive quite, quite right. significantly. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I was beating the drum in, in this uh, for years thinking that, and unknowingly I was in victim consciousness. I, I was in a role as the head of learning and development, teaching these leadership practices, uh, got promoted to the head of HR for this company and, I had it in my head that I needed to fix the CEO. I needed to fix the leadership team. I needed to fix the company. I needed to fix capitalism. And, and I painted them all as the villain. Mm -hmm. And I was going to come be the hero and save everybody. And I, I, was, I was so blind to my own ambitions in this way. It, it drove me into deep depression. And this is when I came face to face with you know, a major depressive episode that evolved into suicidal depression for me last year, mm. which I had never experienced anything like this before. Um, Christine and I had decided to end our marriage and I was learning how to be a single co-parent to a one and three year old 50% of the time. Um, I had a consulting gig going with um, Gear Deli Chocolate out in the Bay Area. I was flying back and forth that project ended and I was just face to face with, um, oh my gosh, the life that I thought I was going to have mm -hmm. is not so. All the external trappings. All the external trappings. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's when I really got present to, okay, I have to look at myself as cause in my own, in everything in my life and not point the finger and blame Christine or blame that company or blame capitalism or blame whatever. And it's in that move that I, I started reaching out to friends and former colleagues that I'd worked with and known and loved for years. And I said, you know, as we think back to the work we did together, how would you put language to the contributions that we made, you know, that really endured over time, that, yeah. that had some staying power, not just a flavor of the month kind of thing. <laughs> and um, by and large, what I heard back from, from everyone was some some language close to this. And then my one friend, Abigail, who I worked really closely with, she said, oh, Kent, that's really easy. You, you taught us it was okay to be fully human at work. 
and it just hit me. I relaxed, when I, right? I felt yeah. a somatic relaxing. When the truth hits you over the head, it sure, everything melts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what I, I looked up that domain name, fullyhumanatwork.com. Oh, it's available. Gift, 10 bucks. Like, no brainer, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm going to buy this. And then I started writing, right? I started writing my way out of this depression. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what I've learned is I've studied you know, that particular, it's uh, the Karpman triangle or the drama triangle, it's called, where we, where we, you know, continuously vacillate among the hero, the villain, and the victim mm-hmm. in our stories about, you know, who's in our lives and what's happening to us. And we're all kind of going around. If you listen to any conversation, most people, most of the time are just in a competition to see who can be the biggest victim. Well, and I think it's really <laughs> interesting that you bring up the triangle because I think, in this conversation about the external versus the internal, which I, I'm getting is kind of our theme here, is that there's a whole lot of conversation about victim mentality and, oh, don't be the victim and you're bringing the suffering upon yourself, don't be the victim. And I think that's a really important thing that you've sort of touched on in your conversation about, I'm going to change the CEO, I'm going to change capitalism, is, you know, the hero suffers too. And, 100%. And this idea that we need to be one of these things and that we are going to make a big punching impact through force through fighting on our external world everyone is suffering whether you are the hero the villain or the victim 100% and and the, the the mechanism at play with the hero is the hero's trying to get themselves and everyone else out of pain mm-hmm. um and and wants some reward for having done so mhm and when that doesn't happen, when, when I can't fix someone else's pain <laughs> <laughs> and I can't get that attaboy for having fixed their pain, mm-hmm. that triggers my own unworthiness. Yes. That's back to the conditionality. I'm worthy of mm-hmm. love and belonging, as Brene Brown would say, yeah. if I can fix this other person. And this is where we can get into all kinds of codependency issues, right? It, this is yeah. a whole deep but deep well too it is and, it, and it's a very good point because you brought up this starting with the healers with the people whose life's passion is to take care of others and i was given a very good piece of advice um, a phenomenal piece of advice from a woman um, i first worked with as a chiropractor fresh out of school and that was you can't take responsibility for your patient's healing because then you have to take responsibility for their suffering each individual mm. is going to heal or suffer, do the work, not do the work as they will. You are just showing them the way. You can't yeah. take responsibility. That That's beautiful. Informed every day of my practice. That's really beautiful. Um, what what a what a relief to not have to hold everybody's suffering and everybody's healing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I know I know a lot of people in in the service world. Um, that that's, that's a push pull that, that feels familiar because you can spend a lot of time beating yourself up thinking, well, you know, John got better immediately. Look what a great job I did with John, but Joe is just where he started. How am I failing Joe? So suddenly in one thought or another, you are both, you know, the hero and the villain, and, and the victim all at once. I mean, we're, 
we're holding all of those regardless of, of what we want to call ourselves. For sure. And, and, and again, that's like, let's not make that wrong. Yeah. Right. Because that's still the same machinery firing if we're making ourselves wrong for being in victim consciousness. So again, this fully human at work mm -hmm. invitation is what is our work to become more fully human, knowing that we all have this dark shadow, mm -hmm. um, egoic side. N no one escapes that. We have that. We, we need Part to continue to grow through it and make it, make it visible. And there's one healing modality called vo voice dialogue where we get to presence these different parts of us um, and make friends with them. You know, the more we try to make them go away, the louder they get. And so it's really about evolving into a larger consciousness that can hold, not try to get rid of or fix. Or, so here we go back into some healing arts language. You know, yeah. there's two narratives that we can be writing about what is so. There's a pathogenic narrative, which is what most of allopathic or Western medicine is, which is, it's a victim narrative. There's an injury, an illness, uh, something's broken, and our mode of treatment is to control, fix, get rid of. Cut out or poison. Totally. Mm -hmm. we, and let's not make that wrong. It is a way, and it, and it is effective. It, it saved my life. I would not be here without that. And 100%. One hundred percent. So we're not making that wrong. Um, the other narrative that we can author comes from, I think it's an Israeli American sociologist named Anton Antonovsky. Antonovsky's his last name. I'm not sure his first name, but he he coined the term salutogenesis, which is literally means the creation of healing or health. So if we so if we create a salutogenic narrative which really means coming to terms with things as they are. It's accepting what is so. Mm -hmm. And in that move, we get to relax and, um, you know, tying this into something we were talking about earlier, the push pull um, in the, in the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu speaks to this concept of Wu Wei, which translates into no forcing or don't mm -hmm. force. And that metaphorically can be viewed as sailing versus rowing. Yeah. Right. So when I'm rowing, I am, I am pointing myself and I'm compelling the current and the water and the wind and everything. And I'm forcing and I'm efforting and I'm compelling a particular way that things are going to go. <laughs> or, Another way might be, here's what the wind is doing, <laughs> here's, here's what the water's doing, and here are the tools and resources that I have to work with what is so, and, and, mm -hmm. and sail, and get with the flow of things. And, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's taking your circumstances for what they are, and, and, and the constantly in the, in the uh, lens of healthcare, it's this idea of, of people coming in and having this, my back, my back is bad. It's just bad. Right. And now we're, we are labeling and condemning a part of our person that, you know, we're carrying this with us until the grave. This is our vessel and making it the thing that needs to be poisoned, cut out and fixed versus I love, I wrote it down. See, here's another benefit of doing this. I don't take notes when we're doing this live. I got all kinds of this now. Um, the salutogenic narrative, it's, it's creating health from what is. Correct. Your back hurts. This biomechanical thing, that biomechanical thing is why. 
And, and starting there, instead of arguing with the validity of your back hurting, the worthiness of your back hurting, and simply saying, well, this is why, and do I have the tools to fix it? Do I have the tools to put up my sail and glide towards health or row aggressively towards, I don't know, something else? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's and that salutic, salutogenic perspective views a life as a continuum, you know, mm-hmm. of, of less healthy to more healthy. And at any yeah. given time, we are somewhere along this continuum versus the allopathic is like, everything's fine until you're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, and we had a great conversation um, with uh, Dr. Cunningham a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm not sure when that one will get published because everything's a little up in the air right now, but yes. it's talking about the idea of early detection versus early um, intervention or preventative care. And in allopathic care, what we want to call um, uh, preventative care is actually early detection. We're just waiting for your numbers to get bad enough that we can say you're sick. Right. right. Then we can cut it out because until you are, your numbers, whatever they are, your images come back bad enough that there's something we can poison or cut, <laughs> nothing to be done. Right. Versus the continuum of dis-ease, it's this, going back to the beginning of our conversation, mm. it's this um, internal work of what am I doing that's serving me and my body and my health that is not so bad that it has become external, that somebody else can touch, poke, and fix it? That makes sense. It totally makes sense. And, and to me, um, what, what I hear you describing is also something that we invite people to um, step into in our Fully Human at Work introductory program, and that is what, what's a life of practice mean? Mm-hmm. What are the habitual patterns that I practice, and which of those patterns are um, have some neuroses associated with them that are actually moving me towards the um, lower levels of health on the continuum? Mm-hmm. Which which of my practices and patterns um, are actually serving me and are moving me? up the levels of health along that continuum. And this, in Buddhism, they, they talk about these as the three difficulties mm-hmm. in, in life. And the first difficulty is to be able to identify neuroses as neuroses. <laughs> big difficulty. <laughs> Which is a big difficulty, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, or, or another way to language that might be addictions. What are, what are the, what are the, innumerable ways that I distract myself from being present with what is. And that mm-hmm. can look like everything from alcohol, drugs, exercising, working, um, meditating, spiritual bypass. Like there's so mm-hmm. many different ways we can distract ourselves. One of my coaches asked me recently, how do you know the difference between being happy and being distracted and amused? What's your answer? Um, it it is um i don't know if i have an answer but it's more of a for me it gets to the um distracted and amused puts happiness in the realm of conditionality mm-hmm. and i'm i'm distracting and amusing myself so that i create some outcome that allows me to feel happy versus you know allowing the natural 
state of happiness to arise Mm -hmm. independent of me (laughs) willing it to be there through some action. Like you're bringing up the image of the rowboat for me. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I forget where I read this, I but <laughs> no, I forget. Oh gosh, where did I read this? Someone said, "In our search for happiness, it's not like we're trying to find a button that rolled under the radiator." <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so, so um, I lost my thread where where I was going before that. Um, well, what I like is you were bringing up, and, and we keep getting distracted, and I want to make And amused. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. I mean, heck, we got distracted for a half hour before we even started. Um, is you're talking about the aspects of fully human at work and, mm. and the practices of that. And so maybe to bring it back around a little more pointedly, you know, we, we've been discussing around this big, hairy concept of we are unavoidably human. Yes. And practices, businesses, families, parenting, friendships that acknowledge that humanity succeed. There are studies that show this, certainly in the business world, when we have that humanity focus versus profit focus. So it's not a versus, right? It's not an either or. This is and this is one of the this is one of the 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 really important distinctions is mm-hmm. the paradoxical nature, right? Yeah. Uh, um, we need the financial vibrancy and we need the human vibrancy and the human human vibrancy um precedes greater financial vibrancy i love that thank you for calling me out on that and i've been thinking all of my favorite guests have a tendency that is to say and not neither nor but but to say and all the, and it's been something I've been trying to incorporate into my own language. And, and that was a perfect moment of where it should have been and not but. <laughs> and, well, that, yes. And how, so how do you then, as your life's work and this fully human at work process that you have available, how do you incorporate the, the needs of humanity and profit? How do we start to knit these things together? Yeah, great question. Um, and it's, I don't have an answer. What I have is an approach into an inquiry such, that, such as you just posed. And um, in our Fully Human at Work programming, um, which orients around le- leadership operating systems in many ways. If we want to, if we want to put this in the context of a work situation, um, for many generations, leaders let the operating system that leaders engaged to move things forward was to lead from expertise. Um, I'm the smartest, highest paid person in the room. Uh, one of my colleagues calls it the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. <laughs> That's fantastic. Always, it typically wins. And mm-hmm. when, when we're operating from a place of I know, we are completely cut off from any other possibility ever existing. Mm-hmm. And so for the expert, there are very few possibilities. And um, this question of how do we 
evolve, right? Nothing's broken in our current context. It served us really, really well. Capitalism for hundreds of years has, has lifted humanity. You know, millions and millions of people have advanced our, our lifetime uh, expectancy has advanced, right? Lots of good things have happened. Yeah. And along the way, it, it has become unmoored from, you know, the humanity in this, in this infinite growth profit motive on a planet with finite resources. So the invitation at this particular time is how do we move into that inquiry without knowing the answer? Scary. Because the, right, which is, which is one of the, 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 you know, the expert leader finds all of their self-worth and power in knowing. And in the, in the totality of what there is to know in the cosmos, mm-hmm. what any individual actually knows is the smallest part of that pie. Yeah. There's another part of that pie, which are things that I know I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do chiropractic adjustments. I know mm-hmm. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah. But that actually still exists in the realm of what I know I know. Mm-hmm. But in the realm of what I don't know I don't know is where every single breakthrough exists that we're looking for. And so this question around human centered capitalism, perhaps like it capitalism, even right. Like any ism that we've been previously subscribed to probably won't work. So Mm -hmm. it's not about going back to a socialism or communism or like, it's not about any of these previous isms. It's about having the mental agility to wade into the unknown, to Mm -hmm. wade into the, 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 the spacious, this liminal space from which everything arises and to which everything returns. And when we have the mental agility to set aside our own narrow self-interest and personal agenda relative mm-hmm. to what's happening, and we can really tune into um, that which of its own accord wants to arise mm-hmm. in order to move whatever it is that we're up to forward in a way that's going to serve people that is what's going to allow us to see more from a future to present perspective. What is it that that's going to move us forward in a constructive, generative, positive way mm-hmm. versus being very um, limited by a past to present perspective, which always cuts off most possibilities. Yeah. Because then you're just repeating what you know. Exactly. And if it had worked, I mean, it, it works to the point that it does. It serves its purpose. Everything serves its purpose. But then returning to it, asking to serve an additional purpose, asking to push you forward again, is really just kind of a, a sense of spinning your wheels. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so the invitation at this time, is, as I see it, um, mm-hmm. amidst, you know, and COVID, I think, again, is, is simply shining a light on the, the underlying nature of reality, the underlying, underlying nature of our interdependency and our interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. And as we see this, uh, it, it's a, I, I view COVID as a harbinger to shift our collective consciousness from our individuated narrow self-interest, need to be right, need to be liked, conditional upon, right, all of that, to, yeah. to a more collective consciousness, a we consciousness, where we recognize we are all facing a variety of limit situations in the systems and structures and ways the world worked that served us incredibly well over the last 300 years in many, Mm -hmm. many, 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 many ways. So how do we honor all of that and 
um, in an evolutionary context, let the things die that need to die. Just mm-hmm. like every season, the leaves fall off the trees. It doesn't mean the trees are broken. It doesn't mean they need to be fixed. It, um, it doesn't mean they're imperfect. It's just an ongoing unfolding of things dying off and things being reborn. And we're seeing that now at the scale of the whole in systemically in healthcare and education in, in all the isms that we're heavily subscribed to are being disrupted by this gift of COVID that's going to invite us to slow down. <laughs> it's going to invite us to, right? Yeah. Go inside. And I just, I love, I mean, your image of the tree is just fantastic because I think we can get into some very defeatist and catastrophizing language. And there are certainly enough scary things out there to tempt that, to, to call you towards it. But to say that everything, you know, let's burn the forest, (laughs) you know, versus yes, let's shed what's not working. And, and I think the gift of this, of a, of a pandemic, an unprecedented pandemic, something we have never seen before, is to speak to what you were talking about just moments ago of, well, the things that served us in the past won't serve us now. So having something that we've never seen before begs us to do something we've never done before. Exactly. It's, exactly. And that's and what I say in my work in corporations all the times, right? So a client that has had trouble hitting their projections and their business plan for multiple years in a row, all of a sudden gets a mandate from, from someone, largely the investor, mm-hmm. stakeholder, says you need to double your business over a period of time. Well, okay, I'm, I'm standing here and what is so, I, I haven't been able to demonstrate my ability to perform at a current rate and level. And now you're asking me to actually exponentially increase my performance over a period of time. So if that's the ask, if, I, if you were asking me to achieve results I have never achieved before, I have to be willing to become someone I've never been before. Mm. And most people are scared to death of that. Yeah. And we choose to stay comfortably in our known victimhood Rather than stepping into, I have no idea what's going to happen. (laughs) And that's what vulnerability is. And this is what we need to see in leaders right now. You know, stepping away from, I have all the answers because I've been here the longest or I started this company or I'm the smartest or whatever. And we need to create, and and Google has done studies around this. In Project Aristotle, they they looked at differentiating who were the, the highest performing teams at Google versus the rest of the pack. And, and what they found is it came down to one primary element and that the highest performing teams had psychological safety. People, tell us, could, show tell up, us more about that, what people that could show up and be themselves without fear of being condemned or ridiculed or judged or criticized. I get to play my instrument the way I enjoy to play my instrument and I learn how to do it in harmony with other people. You know, I, I use this music metaphor quite a bit, you know, in a, in a, in, in a band, jazz ensemble, symphony, whatever, you don't have the percussion section trying to compel the brass section to become percussionists. <laughs> you, you don't, right? You don't see the strings, right? There, there is an honoring of very distinct differentiation. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of integration such that you have people fully expressed in their individual way masterfully and that's transcended by a collective offering 
that's far greater than any one of those individual musicians could produce or contribute in their own individual efforts. Yeah, the sum becomes greater, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. 100%. And so when I look at organizations, and that could be a family, that could be a, a, a school system, it could be a community, it could be a, a business context, any collective, the, the shift in leadership is to go from the highest paid person's opinion, um, setting the direction to the how do we create containers, safe containers, such that the collective consciousness can emerge and people can feel free to express their valid and partial perspective mm -hmm. of their way of relating to what is so. Mm -hmm. And as we can all share our valid and partial perspectives, we get a chance to get a glimpse of more of the whole. And, and as partial piece becoming such a key, I think we're obligated often to show up with a whole answer, with a complete answer. Even my question to you asking you about fully human at worth is what's your solution? I was implying and toning that I wanted not your partial um, portion of this solution of this global necessary effort, but all right, Kent, I'm ready. How are we fixing this? Totally. And, and, and this really is a leadership experiment for me, quite mm -hmm. frankly, and that is not being attached to how this is going to continue to unfold, but rather be a steward of an emergent conversation that mm -hmm. I am begging other people to come into and share their wisdom and perspective from their own lived experiences and areas of focus and interest and curiosity Mm -hmm. How do we all come together in concert to provide a more fully human experience that's steeped in kindness and compassion and uh, more togetherness? And what I would describe, again, whether this is a family context or a work context or a school or community context, it's, it's a shift from having power over others to having power with. Mm -hmm. And... Um, when we can arrive, and so this is what I'm doing. I'm holding this conversation. I haven't incorporated it. I haven't trademarked it. I haven't done anything except build a website and I've created some really strong curriculum based on the Buddhist eightfold path, which is technology that's existed for thousands of years that really when followed and practiced alleviates unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're, that's the spine of the program really. And, and, and all of the different offerings and practice sets that can, that can hang off of these eight points of attention in the eightfold path of how my view and the way I see things gives rise to the way I think about things and gives birth to the intentions that I have. And that gives rise to the way I think about things and the way I talk about things. And the way I talk about things gives rise to the actions I see that I can take or not. All of that, the way I see things, think about things, talk about things, and the actions I take in a coordinated manner is, is what, I, what my work is. I go out and, and make a living every day in that way. So, so it's an invitation into right livelihood and mm -hmm. what is our collective work at this point in time in human history and what's the right effort quality of our effort that we need to put forward and how much are we rowing and trying to compel mother nature and all the other natural forces of the world to, to, to acquiesce to our own, you know, arrogance in, in who it, we think we are. 
And what I, and I love that where that begins, because again, we're, we're back to that X, Y axis. It's that internal to the external and then pushing so far in humanity into the external that we're trying to control the globe and nature. But there is an aspect about humanity that we are so, so uncomfortable with the unknown, yet it is such an important necessity to, to make friends with it because of that eight step path, the f at least the first half is all internal. So, well, so, so they break it into three, three mm -hmm. segments, really. Um, mm -hmm. It's broken down to wisdom. It is right view mm -hmm. and right thought. When I'm seeing things the right way and thinking about things in, in a truthful way, that's wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, the, the next grouping is what they call ethical conduct, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Mm -hmm. Doing no harm to others through my words, actions, and how I make a living, essentially. And then the third con construct is mental discipline, mm -hmm. right mindfulness, and right concentration, and right effort. Well, and so for all of those pieces that are um, the right consciousness and the right livelihood and how we engage with the world, there becomes a implied trust or an implied understanding that that first center of right thought and, and being within yourself, your experience of that is not going to be anything that I, I get to touch or see or hold and right. neither is mine. And there is a little bit of unknowing for me that your gifts and your contributions are going to come from things I will never be able to truly see and know about you until they become enacted in the world. And in that sense, they, they ultimately change because it's now part of my perspective and my perceiving. And so there is an unknowing of trusting you, who you are, who your person is, that you will be a collaborative and impactful part of my community. This is beautiful, beautiful setup, um, Carly. Really, really good. Um, th this ties into some of the other work I do with Landmark. And I think we've talked about Landmark a little bit. Beautiful organization, you know, really working to transform what it means to be human. And, and so it aligns very closely with fully human at work. And they speak to, you know, integrity as a distinction is simply our word. And so, you know, one way that one might substantiate my trust in another in their own interior experience how that is brought into the exteriors through my word mm -hmm. and the, the, the degree to which i keep my word do i say what i'm gonna do i do i do what i say i'm gonna do do i do it when i said i would do it by is it done mm -hmm. completely you know am i doing things that i know others are expecting of me even though i didn't say i was gonna do them you know, mm -hmm. like it, it really, and, and so through our word, uh, and this ties into some of the Toltec wisdom teachings and the four agreements, right? Mm -hmm. Be impeccable with your word. Yeah. And so, and, and right speech is in that, in, in that realm too, right? The, the world and our reality, <laughs> I don't even know where this is in the Bible, right? I forget. You might know, but it's like, uh, I, I, no, you went, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, um, in the beginning, there was the word, right? There was God gave the word, right? Mm -hmm. and the, something to that effect. And so yeah. the words we use create the worlds that we inhabit. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that, that's how we, that's how we earn trust. That's how we build relatedness is mm-hmm. through dialogue is through language. And that arises from our thoughts and from the way we see ourselves, see others and see what's happening either mm-hmm. for us or to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and with that, we are in an essence being, you know, in this time in history, there, there is a lot of trappings that are being taken away that, you know, we can't um, disguise ourselves in busyness. We can't mm. find excuses in that external world of, you know, I would be keeping my word except, you know, and now it's an external thing and there's that, that conversation of victim. You know, we, we are kind of all in this together in a way that is more clear because we've, of course, always all been in this together. But we are being really distilled down to what we have to offer by our person, by our right language, by our integrity, and how can we enact that in the world? Yeah. I think that your your efforts and passions around fully human at work could not be coming at a better time. I think that we have certainly as a society been asking for it, whether we know it or not. And now as we let these leaves shed, you know, there's a lot of room to, to blossom into a more compassionate and, um, and settled sort of, of society that still maintains productive growth, that still maintains um, profit and <laughs> excitement and engagement, but there's more. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm chuckling because, you know, this notion of it's, you know, of maintaining profitable growth. Um, when we look at the financial context of the planet right now, mm-hmm. um, the planet, the, the debt on humanity mm-hmm. and the planet is over 300 times the global GDP. Mm-hmm. It's hundreds of trillions of dollars. So, so who are we in debt to? <laughs> it becomes and, monopoly and, money at some point. And in the well, in the history of of civilizations, there comes a time in in many ancient civilizations where the level of indebtedness reaches a certain point of it's just not workable, right? When we think of integrity, let, let's we'll let decouple it from a moral judgment but let's Mm -hmm. just look at it through the lens of is it workable and does a planet that has such radical wealth inequality and indebtedness is that workable Mm -hmm. i don't know like what would be more workable let's not make it wrong but let's just ask the question is this workable and sustainable in our current context and for generations to come Mm -hmm. and i love the way the iroquois indian nation looks at um, things that they, in their, in their decision-making as best they can, they look seven generations into the future and ask the question as best as we can tell the choice that we're going to make right now, what's the impact of that for seven generations into the future? Mm -hmm. Talk about getting unmoored from a past to present perspective and really thinking about ourselves as stewards of humanity, as stewards mm-hmm. of life on this planet for generations to come. And, and what is it that we really want to take a stand for? 
And what I like about that kind of uh, quite literally forward thinking is that it really strives to decouple us from that arguing, again, trying very carefully to use language that is decoupling from right or wrong, Mm -hmm. but, but taking away that desire to be right or wrong and then to look backwards and say, well, we're in this mess because, and having that backwards thought but instead this um, concept we've talked about before about not arguing with what is. Right. This is the state of our debt, the state of our, our health, our, our, our planet, and does the state of this planet sustain for seven generations? Exactly. No matter whose fault it is, does it sustain? And then what can we do differently? Yeah, and that, that I love riffing with you. Gosh, I so <laughs> enjoy your instrument and the way you play your instrument. It's really, it's fun for me to play off of. So thank you. Um, that was beautifully said. Thank you. <laughs> uh, again, back to Jiddu Krishnamurthy. And, and he was present. This, this other saying of his really helped catalyze the fully human at work conversation. And what he offered was, is that it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted mm-hmm to a profoundly sick society. And, and if we can say profoundly sick, again, without making wrong, mm-hmm. but if we're just looking at a continuum of a level of health or disease, mm-hmm. ease or dis-ease, yep. um, you know, and when we look at our society, we look at the indebtedness, we look at the mental health landscape with depression as the leading cause of disability on the planet, um, we, we look at all of that. We look at um, the healthcare system. We look at education. We look at, we look at all of this and we ask the question, is that healthy? Not making it wrong. Is that healthy? And I've, the, the next question that came up for me was, well, in the attempt to not make wrong, what if the epidemic or the pandemic of mental health challenges that we're seeing predominantly in depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. What if that's actually a healthy response, a healthy immune response to a system that's compromised and moving towards mm-hmm. dysfunction and lower le- levels of health. And therefore there should be no stigma associated with it. And those that aren't agitated with anxiety or depression, given the current level of health that the planet and humanity is in, you know, maybe there's some denial mm-hmm. going on there or, or some numbing or some, you know, disconnectedness beyond our limited view of our self-interests. Well, and we brought this up. I was trying, in, in the moment, I couldn't remember. I was like, of course it came from, of course it came from this conversation. Um, we brought this quote up with our conversation with Ray Thomas and talking about eating disorders and, um, and the way that recovery from that is, in a sense, uh, rebelling against society, rebelling against the, against the disease of our current expectations, external expectations about how we should eat, socialize um, around food, and how we should look. And the theme that I have seen coming out from our conversations since talking with you over coffee that day and, and hearing that, that quote for the first time 
is that a lot of what we talk about on this podcast, a lot of our desires towards the ease of health, not the dis-ease of discomfort and um, and things that just don't work as they are, again, trying to use that language that's not judgmental, is, is an act of rebellion, is, is looking at society as a whole and saying what works and what doesn't and wanting to be different and wanting to find a way to be within that sense of um, difference and rebellion, but again, not getting in my rowboat and rowing upstream and screaming against the wind. It's a very, um, a very uncomfortable place to be. Mm. What's that place Mostly specifically? For myself yeah, yeah. What's yeah? What's this? What's this place specifically? That's this place of being, of of wanting to to see the constructs as they are within our society that are creating the disease about the school systems that need help. All the isms. We'll just go <laughs> right, right, right. All the isms that need to shed some leaves, <laughs> and and wanting to be part of another conversation part of a conversation about being fully human, about being fully within our bodies, of taking responsibility for our health before we have to hand over that responsibility to conventional medicine to, to cut out and fix. How to be within that place and deal with the reaction of being in a place of rebellion, a place of discomfort and being someone different than the external world might suggest and find a way not to argue, not to get in our rowboat and start to push our way upstream with a fight, but to be within the ease of a movement calling for change. And that is for myself, I will be quite honest and vulnerable about it, a very, very difficult place to be. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, and you're not alone in that. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 that's been the best part of all these conversations is oh, for sure. I'm not alone I am. I have, oh my gosh, there are some incredible people working on that question. And yes. I love that it's growing. Yes. Well, to that end, Carly, you know, we, we've traded, we've had conversations and traded voicemail. You know, as I'm thinking about the fully human at work mm -hmm. movement or conversation that, you know, it is unfolding of its own volition, you know, mm -hmm. simply contributing my perspective, you're contributing your perspective. Um, I, I would love to invite, you know, I'm thinking about how, how do we get, give people access to our work in a time where there's some financial constraints and concern and allow us to continue to still try to, you know, make some living. So I'm, I'm wondering like a donation basis, you know, like I, I would, I would love to have you come participate in our next mm -hmm. session. I think you have so much to contribute. I think, your line of, and I'm happy to gift this to you, right? Like your, your line of your line of work and the way you treat the the full human, um, at least in my experience as one of your, um, do you call them patients? What do you call us? <laughs> I do call you patients. Patients, yes. Yeah. Um, you know my experience with you as a practitioner, a healing practitioner, is is has been so helpful to me, and and I would love, you know. To, to, to help amplify what you're doing within the community of, of practitioners that we're really cultivating. So, you know, open invitation always to, for you. you to, for you to bring your voice into our community of practitioners and share your wisdom and, 
you know, the discipline of practices that you have in order to keep yourself and your body and mind and spirit all, <laughs> you know, in, in a healing trajectory. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Uh, you're a really talented practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, tear up. <laughs> oh, it's true. You really oh, are. Like, you, you, thank you. And, and that's part of what fully human at work is as well, is that I, I've, I, again, I've spent decades in a corporate context that the conversation centers around what's wrong with Carly. <laughs> you know, well, she's great here. Like the performance management systems, we're all around like, you're, you're great here, 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 here. So we're going to spend an hour talking about what you suck at. And we're going to have a deep conversation around the things you're really bad at, you probably don't like doing. And we're going to tell you to put a ton of effort and energy into getting this one thing that you don't like and you're not good at better. Uh, warm hug feels like right. It. So like that's that's just not a helpful way of being in an organization. So yeah. being being able to see and appreciate one another's gifts and real contributions that they make, mm-hmm. and presencing them and acknowledging people for that, you know, creates a virtuous cycle of cooperation and invites people like the symphony to continue to be masterful in the cultivation of their own development in, in the things that they love to contribute and then better integrate that with everybody else. So all that to say, I think you play your instrument masterfully and I've been a benefactor of your, um, <laughs> your skillful modalities. Thank um, you. And so I, I, I invite you fully into, you know, sharing those with our community and Thank you. Well, I, yeah. I, I warmly accept that invitation. I mean, <laughs> once, we, once we have our official wrap up here, we'll, we'll talk more and yeah. we'll yeah, create yeah. our plans. And anyone in your community, really, right? Like it, it's, we're forming a community of practice. So anybody that wants to come in and talk about what are the practice sets? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I want to, I want to invite you to share now is, um, you know, a lot of your community is virtual and, and has obligated more towards virtual in, in these times. How can people resource this, that they're, this conversation is what they've been looking for. These opportunities are now rife in this day and age. How do we, how do we jump in? How do we jump into this framework you've created? Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it's a work in progress. So right now we have our introductory um, program called Fully Human at Work, a 21st century imperative. Our next cohort starts April 3rd, fullyhumanatwork.com. It's a six-session 12-hour program. We're going to be meeting every other Friday on Zoom for two hours starting April 3rd to June 12th. Um, and and our current cohort has 30 people in it. We're going to reduce this one, I think, to 18 or so because we want to allow a more intimate, vulnerable dialogue to emerge. Um, I'm starting podcasting and, and <laughs> video casting. So if, if, you, uh, if you cruise the Facebook Live, and I'm going to be getting a YouTube channel up. Um, we're going to be opening up open conversations. My friend Josh, have you met Josh Dykstra yet? No, I have not. Friends of Kyle, yeah, I got to introduce you to Josh. I, I, right. I've t- I've talked to him about you, and and he and Kyle work together. So you and Josh need to be connected. Josh and I are actually hosting a virtual happy hour tonight, um, from five thirty to seven thirty. Josh is the CEO of a company called Helios, and I've been a client of theirs and a practitioner of theirs. Um, they help people understand intrinsic motivation and 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 how when we're faced with um, undesirable currents and winds, how might we orient our sails such that 
um, we're putting ourselves in the best position to move in a, in a healthy narrative and direction with what we're facing. So there's all kinds of ways. Drop me a note. Um, happy to do one-on-one conversations with anyone. I just love holding this conversation. And so anyone who wants to step into conversation about what it means to be fully human at work can reach out to me directly or check out our website. Fantastic. And I've, I've got to just say, do it. Um, <laughs> this the that Ken walks the walk and talks the talk. I have not had an interact interaction um, with him that has not been steeped in his knowledge of this or his vulnerability in exploring it. And again, that we are always on that continuum and always having places of of what we don't know, we don't know. And I, I have been inspired and touched by our, our interactions um, oh. over coffee and, and in the treatment room. I mean, it, it starts to feel trite to say, but it's still true is that I learn as much from my patients. Um, so thank you. And you, this, this is a resource, people. I'm oh. a fantastic resource. <laughs> You're very welcome. Can I, can I do one more vulnerable thing real quick? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is another uh, practice of mine. Um, I like music and poetry. And so I've committed to myself that I want to use this as, as part of my own healing. And so mm-hmm. um, can I share a poem that I wrote recently please, please. as a way to, to close us out maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's so perfect. After, our, after my friend Reggie and I, who is my co- co-conspirator in Fully Human at Work curriculum design and facilitation, after our first session in January, I took a walk and went out and found a stream and some trees. And I found myself standing on two rocks um, in, in the stream, in the flow of the stream. And I just got really present to our, our initial step into this conversation with a group of 30 people and what it might mean to be fully human at work. And so this poem, this just came out. I recorded it real time on my voice memo on my phone and I just transcribed it, but this was a stream of consciousness. It's called, Do I Work? Let's hear it. Is a river busy at work? Is it running from side to side, looking back at where it's been, worried about what's just around the bend? Does a river work? Does a tree work rooted deeply into the earth? Is it clinging, attached for dear life to the nutrients of the soil that Mother Earth provides? Do its branches struggle to reach towards the sky, pushing the leaves forward, thirsting for water? Does a tree work? Does the wind work? Shoving, pushing, blowing, moving anything and everything out of its way. To what end is the wind working? Does the sun work? Heaving fiery energy in all directions to ignite unlimited possibility through its life-giving heat. Does the sun work? Does the sky work seemingly, effortlessly, holding 
everything. Does the sky work? Do I work? Flowing like a river, standing as a tree, moving with the wind. Is my light shining? And can I hold with benevolent grace the space with the sky? Do I work? Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. I love, oh man, we could do another hour on that. Um, the, um, the idea that I love that is summed up and brought to light there. And as my family comes home from their little walkabout, you'll probably hear them chattering in the background. Excellent. Um, All part of fully human. All part of being fully human. We got everyone here, but what, what that brings about is summarizing our conversation so beautifully about leaning into our strengths, leaning into what we do joyously, naturally, and not without effort, but reconsidering what work means. That if we are embodying our gifts, is it really work? And I think in imparting thoughts, particularly at this time in our world and this time in our life, is that so much of what's happening around us is obligating us to be someone we have never been before and that's terrifying and we've talked about all the ways that's terrifying not all the ways but many of the ways that's <laughs> terrifying but at the heart of that we are still ourselves in humanity and there is still a great deal of ourselves that works that works beautifully in community at large in our homes and in our own individual hearts and acknowledging the terror of the unknown and the strength of the individual, I think that is my hope for us as we all figure out what works in the coming generations. Mic drop. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Ken. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Carly. Always a pleasure. I love you. I, I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed. Um, thank you for your good care of me and all your patience and, you know, Again, you know, the, the work you're doing is just magnificent and I'm, I'm happy to be part of your community. Thank you. I, I think that you, you are a gift to our community and the message you have to share is inspiring. Um, I really urge people as we start to engage with our virtual world, hop on over to Fully Human at Work, see what inspires you to do more in your community and uh, look for more conversations like this. Um, you know, we're, we're gearing our podcast towards towards the new realities and um i'm i'm thank you for being with us here today ken you're welcome i'm gonna have to have you as a guest on my podcast all right it's a date <laughs> all right everyone thanks for joining us uh we'll catch you next time for another episode of the healing ground movement podcast thank you for listening to today's episode i hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.